0: Welcome to GradCast, the official radio show and podcast of the Society of Graduate Students at Western University. I'm your host, Megan Bull,
1: And I'm your co-host, Mark Ambrosio. Uh, Megan, um, can you think offhand, I don't mean to put you on the spot, (laughs) of any uh, tropes in literature and fiction that are very popular?
0: You don't have to put me on the spot. I already can think of one. I'm a huge Hallmark movies fan, so one of the tropes that I can think of right off the bat is the whole, they don't kiss the whole movie, but once they kiss at the end, the movie's done, everything's happily ever after, and it's the kiss that marks it.
1: I somehow feel that Hallmark movies, and that's a good, good point, are their own trope. and uh, <laughs> they are. Um, although they don't list, contain references to other literary works and... Somebody who has a little more academic interest in this area than I do is my friend and, and LAS Library of Information Science fellow Ph.D. candidate Alex Mayhew. Alex, um, why don't you tell us a little bit about um, how your work? I understand this, is, this touches on your th- your dissertation, how it touches upon the concept of tropes.
2: All right, uh, certainly. So. There is um, a bunch of different ways to organize knowledge out in the world. Library cataloging is a classic one. You have your Dewey Decimal System. But um, there's also, you may have spent some time on the website TV Tropes, Uh, if you do. um, I'm sorry for the loss of your day. but. It's, it's another way of conceptualizing uh, how to understand a particular text. So you have, uh, say, your example of the Hallmark movies, and one of the recurring uh, thematic patterns is, uh, you know, the happily ever after kiss, and then the movie is done. Um, and you can organize texts based off of their relationship to one another by the shared inheritance of, uh, of these tropes. And that's what my thesis work focuses on. I'm trying to create a catalog that would be able to uh, map those connections and allow you to make interesting connections between texts. Um, my go-to example tends to be uh, The Lion King, which is not Hamlet, but it's certainly a descendant of Hamlet. <laughs> you have a bunch of its own tropes, like the Dead person conversation. You're, you know, Simba talks to his dad in the clouds. Hamlet talks to his the father's ghost, um, and then you have uh, other things: the treacherous uncle, you know, you, the return, and then uh, the departure and the return, the prodigal hero, things like that. And um, yeah, it's just I noticed there's a bunch of disparate ways to organize and catalog and collect um, records of texts uh, uh, to describe texts and i'm trying to create a, a framework that would allow us to bring all of that together because people are really interested in describing the granular descriptions of text or to describe uh, have the relationships described between texts
1: that's really interesting alex and um and thank you i really appreciate that description i think science people and think of library information science Well, the first question is, is that a discipline? Like, like, are you you studying how to put books on the shelf? (laughs) And then if they know a little bit more, they understand that it involves uh, cataloging information, i.e. Dewey Decimal System, Library of Congress. Uh, But for a lot of people, it stops right there. But when you think about what we're doing, it's a lot of it's about, or much of it is about the, an information encounter and grappling with what's happening in that information encounter. And I think we may sometimes want much to hesitate to use word information in the context of fiction. But I think it makes sense what you're doing. I know it makes sense because um, we can catalog movies by title, year made, mm-hmm. by director, etc. But the idea of cataloging movies and novels and plays by shared tropes or similar plot lines is really fascinating, and it makes sense because. There isn't really that much that's actually new, (laughs) and what what is new is the way in which it's presented to us and packaged. But a lot of it's just about the unpacking and repacking. Um, Beyond unpacking and repacking, do you have a better? Would you have a term for what you're? what you're doing <laughs>
2: so the overall framework i call phylomimetics because it is a riff on phylogenetics which is the idea that species descend from one another by the inheritance of their various gene pools and so texts descend one, from one another based off of the inheritance from their various meme pools and there's there's all sorts of analogies you can build off of that um, but to keep it pretty simple uh, phylomimetic cataloging is the the theoretical framework that I'm trying to design and I'm
1: trying to build an actual functioning prototype uh, on the basis of it. That's really exciting. And um, as some of our listeners will appreciate, when you're doing a PhD thesis, you're supposed to find a gap on the shelf and, (laughs) uh, and try to fill that gap. And I think you're certainly filling that gap
2: well, I, I actually try to frame it a bit differently. Um, I don't think that uh, library cataloging actually needs what I'm doing. I think there's a lot of challenges and issues in, in in library cataloging. But the way I frame it is, this is an opportunity. We could, if we chose to, go in this direction and make the library catalog a place not just for uh, finding and retrieving books, but a place for exploring and participating and recording new types of knowledge uh, a place that would be fun to spend time sort of like Wikipedia or TV tropes or what have you
0: you mm-hmm. know Alex I I kind of see this as a not just a genetic cata- categorizing system but very you know user oriented to to use technical terms and the reason I said it is because I've always you know I like one thing you know I like Hamlet and I'm always like you know I would love to find something really like this thing that I just really love. Can you direct me to other um, pieces of art like it? And I, I really think that that's an interesting proposal to categorize. So I'm just curious, like, how the, the genetics of the system work.
2: Well, uh, so I, I make a rough analogy between genes and things The the general category of memes, which include things like tropes and, you know, fairy tale motifs or particular research methods, if we're talking about uh, research papers, Uh, there's a huge list of Mm -hmm. different things that could count as memes. Um, You could... There's a bunch of different ways you could uh, look into the specialized literature in dozens of different fields and see how do they make granular descriptions or how do they make relationships between the the items of concern, texts or what have you. Um, And then there's the entirely separate question of how do you incorporate user participation? How do you make the users uh, feel welcome and able to participate in in the process? Because obviously if we're talking about traditional cataloging, you're not going to expect, uh, you know, people working in the cataloging field to know the specific details and trope makeup of every particular text. So the only way you would be able to make use of a catalog in this way uh, to its full extent is if you're able to invite the public in which have all their specialized knowledge and interest in their various, you know, uh, fan communities or, or academic field or what have you.
0: And that's kind of going into my next question because, you know, I, as you were talking, I was thinking, this literally happened to me last weekend where I love The Princess Bride. I ended up watching The Mask of Zorro for the very first time. It's a very old movie. I don't know how I haven't seen it. And to me, they had very similar uh, tropes, characteristics, or vibes, what have you. And for me, the way you're proposing this this categorizing system that incorporates users and, and a bunch of different aspects. It almost seems to me like you're building a literal personalization system or like personalization algorithm.
2: You do have to be a little bit careful with that because there is a uh, universalist impulse in the entire project, mm-hmm. which is trying to combine all of the different disciplines into sort of like a grand unified framework yep. of all knowledge organization. But at the same time, you do also have the risk of uh, creating very individualized uh, understandings of how texts work. Uh, exist or relate to one another that um, might translate to other people and might not. And uh, yeah, it's a balancing act to try and trying to account for both of these, which have their positives and negatives.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, Alex, you mentioned the word universal, and I think um, we're, we're cognizant as, as humans that our capacity to store information is limited. Um, you know, it feels like I sometimes I, I I'm better remembering what happened a year ago than what happened this morning. <laughs> Sometimes it's the other way around. But uh, computers, though, we often think, okay, computers—they're infallible, and this leads me. You're—I know you're a man of many interests, a Renaissance man, if you will—and uh, <laughs> trapped within the confines of the LIS world. Uh, but I, I know you have other interests. So One of your other interests is um, social selection of algorithms, and artificial intelligence more broadly. And I'm wondering, um, we hear a lot about AI. What is the approach you're taking to AI specifically?
2: Well, I, I just want to start off by saying that I actually greatly appreciate LIS. Um, I do think that yes. it's, <laughs> it's a very broad discipline. In fact, it it, it's, it's probably multiple disciplines. So if you want to have your fingers in many pies, it's a very good place to be. Um, yeah, so uh, one of the things that I'm trying to do is well, I'm a PhD student and working on my thesis, which I think is likely to be the best chance I have of having positive impact. I nevertheless also have accrued a tiny amount of credibility as a PhD student will, and uh, credibility is akin to a type of power. And with the tiniest amount of power, you have you know great responsibility. I think that's how the saying goes. <laughs> uh, and so. There are other cause areas in the world that I don't think I'm likely to make a huge impact on. But, nevertheless, I think it's valuable to raise my voice when I think there's things of concern. And I follow... two other topic areas beyond uh, uh, my phylomimetic cataloging theory that I'm developing. One is a project I call Aging Justice, which I'd love to talk about some other time. And the other is, as you mentioned, uh, the social selection of algorithms, uh, which is a subset of the, my broader concern on the future of AI and how it's going to interact with society. And um, like the, the gist of it is there's a lot of news articles right now which say don't talk about the long term of AI. That's just don't talk about that at all. We need to focus on the problems that exist now, and I, I genuinely don't know what's going through people's minds on that. Um, that's like that's not what I'm trying to do. I'm not trying to psychoanalyze anyone. I just I just genuinely don't understand because well, we've been here before, right? This mm-hmm. this is climate change in the 1970s. Yeah. We we know that things are going to get worse, and we should be thinking about that now and working on that now. Um, and there's a lot of people, for whatever reason, uh, people who I generally find respectable and, and, and uh, credible, who don't seem to be taking that tack on it. And I think it's... Valuable to raise my voice and say no. We should probably be thinking about the long term as well.
1: Um, yeah, I wanted to ask you. So I'm impressed, Alex, that you have multiple research interests. Um, sort of a twofold question. One, what drew you drew your academic attention to AI? And two, you mentioned a long term mm-hmm. look at this. Why a long term look? Uh, yeah.
2: So. Um my, my initial interest in AI actually comes from outside of academia. I've just been following the development of the uh, AI itself, as well as the, the critical response to it in the AI alignment and safety community for 20 years or so. Um, and it's just, there's been people shouting about this is going to be a problem for 20 years. And now those problems have emerged. And now they're saying there's going to be even more problems. So, you know, that seems like the sort of thing where academia would be useful to chime in, and here I am, so here I will. And uh, sorry, apologies. What was your second question? The
1: second question. So I think you're heading that direction, anyways. But why the long-term perspective?
2: Right, of course. Uh, yeah. So um, well, that's, I think, one of the things that academia is particularly good at is we can be that sober second thought. We can. We can just not respond to the immediate ascent incentives that are put before us say like in industry um, you know the the companies building these AI systems obviously have to make their quarterly profit reports and things like that um, though there are some uh, complexities there as well and I think that's it's just a great uh, opportunity that academia has to say look we have all these problems that are emerging from ai right now we have uh, fake news we have deep fakes we have have the potential for electioneering um, and we need to deal with those those are here now we're we're dealing with them right now but we're also able to say okay where are we going to be what is going to happen we know these systems are becoming more capable over time the amount of money being poured into them uh it's obviously like just like obviously they're going to be more capable over time. Uh, I can go through why that would be expected if we want, but um, setting uh, that as just, you know, a a prior, uh, we can say, okay, they're going to be more capable uh, as time goes on. And we know that we've never been able to successfully make uh, machines do what we want. We can only ever make them do what we tell them to. Mm -hmm. And the divergence between those two is, More and more important, the more and more powerful these systems become. Uh, So it's just, you know, you put those two together and it's obvious as they become more powerful, they become more dangerous because we've never successfully figured out how to reliably make machines do what we want. It is actually a little bit worse than that, uh, possibly a lot worse than that, because even if we could make them do what we want... We don't know what we want. Like philosophically, <laughs> there is no like universal set of human values that everyone agrees on, and says, "Yes, let's just make the machine do that." Uh, and most of the ones that have been suggested are uh, horrifying if you like think about them for more than five minutes.
0: Mm-hmm. Now, Alex, I want to take a step back, sure, because fortunately, I think you and my research interests align. I'm also working on a project investigating AI um, algorithms and the harms that they can cause or and do cause. And I would agree with you about everything you've said up until this point. Now, I want to take a sta- step back because our listeners, they might not know the implications of what mm-hmm. you're talking about. So for our listeners, can you give an example of the harms that I I think AI is maybe doing now, those little harms that the newspapers are talking about, and then maybe an example of a long-term harm and why these are problematic.
2: Excellent, yeah, so uh, a news article from, say, about, I don't know, four or five months ago was, uh, I believe this woman, I'm gonna say Texas, uh, got a phone call Mm -hmm. and it sounded like it was her daughter's voice on the phone call uh, saying, you know, mom, please help me. And then, you know, someone else uh, jumped on the line and said, hey, uh, give us this amount of money, otherwise you'll never see your daughter again. Mm -hmm. Uh, Something to that effect. And, uh, you know, she, she was very worried, so she called up her daughter's uh, cell phone, and the daughter answered she was fine, because uh, the daughter had enough of a social media presence that her voice was able to be faked. And so, you know, there's there's a very easy extortion attempt. Uh, another example just uh, off the top of my head is uh, during the recent Toronto elections, uh, certain One of the parties put forward uh, images of what Toronto would look like, (laughs) in air quotes here, um, if the opponent won. And uh, these were, you know, uh, AI-generated images that naturally made it look like it would be uh, an inhospitable city under under their opponent. Mm -hmm. Um, Anyway, so, like, these are the sorts of things that uh, can be done... uh, Arguably, some of this could have been done uh, prior to AI, but it's the speed and efficiency and the, the access. Like people who have no technical knowledge mm-hmm. can do this mm-hmm. quickly and efficiently and at scale. Yep. And that's the problem. Uh, for longer term, uh, it varies. Um, you will hear things like uh, automating away millions of jobs, possibly more. Uh, I think that that is plausibly on the table. I don't know for sure. Uh, But, like, in the extreme, and I do think that this needs to be, like, uh, considered seriously, is we're talking about human extinction. Like, that is a thing that has not been ruled out. The people who say that is not something we should talk about, you ask them why, and they say because it comes from the genre of science fiction. I'm like, okay. (laughs) But, like your your genre match i know a thing or two about genre here
0: <laughs> you do it's
2: not that's not a good reason for why it's not to be taken seriously like th- this is one of the difference with uh between uh the long-term development of ai and the long-term trends of uh of uh say climate change is climate change is unlikely to cause the death of literally everyone mm-hmm. ai as it stands right now is also unlikely to cause the death of literally everyone but it's not going to stay where it is, and it's not clear. Like nobody's been able to tell us why, because we don't know how it's going to turn out. Therefore, it'll be safe. Like that. That. That reasoning has not been fleshed out. Mm-hmm. Uh, and as we say, the thing is becoming more and more powerful, and we don't know how to tell it what we want. And so, at some point in time, if we haven't like otherwise. Uh, undermine uh, its ability to do stuff or by, you know, having some sort of financial crisis or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, it will become powerful enough to, for example, uh, complete every task necessary on the the entire development and supply chain to sustain itself and self-modify and, you know, like make the next version of itself that's more capable than the first one. Uh, this is like, explicitly, the goal of many of these AI research companies is they, they're trying to make an AI that will help them build the next version of the AI. So, like, it's, it's a very natural thing. Now, I don't think we need to go there. Mm-hmm. I don't think we need to actually say this is what you need to be afraid of. Um, but I do think that it is irrational and, well, irresponsible to, to a large degree to, to say we know this won't happen when you don't.
1: Um, Alex, mm-hmm. you've spoken of fear. We we've we've also heard the word threat
0: mentioned. Mm-hmm. Apocalyptic discourse. Yes, um, apocalyptic discourse. Yes.
1: And um, you also mentioned science fiction and I notice there's a little bit of irony here. I not so much poking poking at you, but more irony in how this is situated because um, so about science fiction specifically, science fiction itself is kind of ironic because a lot of people who read science fiction, especially when they're young, go on to have an interest in emerging science and emerging technology. So sure. there's a the whole science fiction for scientists phenomenon or yeah. even science fiction by scientists, although not that doesn't describe everyone because <laughs> there's also a literary aspect to science fiction. Um, and within science fiction, returning to AI, you know, uh, Terminator, etc., etc. et cetera. Yes. Um, so uh, science fiction sometimes... Points to the future, but it points to the future with fear, some often, not always, but often. Like science fiction can be very dystopian. I think, for example, uh, Ray Bradbury once said, I write not to describe the future, but to prevent it. And uh, so, with regards to AI, um, and, and you know, one of the ironies in this, a lot of the people who know seem to know a lot about AI and who even work in the field are telling us, oh, are speaking to us about fears and, you know, even here, okay, it should development should be frozen. It's like, okay, cool, but then why are you working in the area? And uh, now, I, I know it doesn't describe your situation exactly, but t- what's happening there, Alex? All
2: right, so there, there's two major things that I want to point out here, uh, or at least that, that are appear to be of importance to me. Uh, one is that science fiction, and I love science fiction, has a terribly, terribly distorting effect on the entire discourse. People... Yes watch terminator and then they think they know what ai is like and it's just not true at all like um one time travel isn't real two the humans aren't going to win uh and three you don't build an army of robots to eliminate humanity you release a virus that just kills everyone after four years of, of incubation period like that i mean that's the thing that, that seems seems so much simpler and you don't do that until you again have been able to secure an energy supply and the ability to self-replicate and self-modify uh, like the thing that people are doing is that they're imagining that there's a fictional ai that's kind of stupid and that it's you know will beat it and that's not the thing we need to worry about. The thing that we can, you know, just unplug or shoot is not the concern. Uh, it's the thing that we won't choose to turn off. Like, say, mm-hmm. social media algorithms, which we've had for decades. We know they cause harm. We know they cause suicides. We haven't turned them off. Why? Because they make so much money.
1: Yeah. And so, they're addictive.
2: Yeah. So, well, I mean, yeah. that's not why we don't turn them off. The companies don't turn them off because they, they make the company's money. Yes. And that's the, going to be the problem with the these you know, AIs that exist right now is like they make the company's money uh, and the next generation is going to make them even more money. And some, you know, engineer comes up and says, look, I think this is causing harm. The CEO is going to say, yeah, I'm not going to be the CEO that gets fired for like turning down, you know, 200 uh, percent profit raise uh, uh, this quarter. So like, no, the, the it, it's very, very uh, challenging. The other thing there is that um, I just described uh, what uh, what happened in a traditional companies like, you know, we're not going to, um, you know, turn down free money. But in order to understand what's going on with the AI development, I think it's really important to realize and to understand that many of the leaders in this field have very strong ideological commitments. Mm -hmm. Like, they Mm -hmm. genuinely believe... That it is worth the risk, and they like they are on the record. Like you can talk, you can see uh, uh, interviews with Altman and uh, Habat uh, and others who say, "Yeah, you know, there's like a 20 percent chance we're going to destroy the world." Like they 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 <laughs> think that that's possible, um, and you know we can quibble about the numbers, but um, but they want to do it anyway because, and this this is the part that I think we should all be really freaked out about, because they think it's for your own good you specifically they think that they are going to make a paradise that you will love and the problem with you know capitalists who just want to make money is pretty well known but when you have a true believer who thinks that they're trying to make the world better for you they have unlimited energy they will nothing will stop them except you know the government and its monopoly on force saying no no you you can't you can't build the you know super intelligent ai that you're trying to build um so that's one of the reasons why i think things like the pause uh should be considered seriously i don't know if that would work it probably wouldn't by a
1: pause you mean
2: (laughs) yeah the the idea of the ai pause is that uh literally no new AIs above a certain size would be allowed to be trained uh, to be created for some period of time and the, the number thrown around is six months but uh, the more radical and I think reasonable proposals is something like until we can prove that the current versions are safe which mm-hmm. by the way even with the ones that we have right now we cannot like the wow. yeah, the most advanced uh, methods of trying to figure out what these AIs are doing work on AIs like that are a hundred neurons in size, tiny, the, the, absolutely tiny, like a uh, uh, chat version four, I believe is something around a trillion uh, 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 parameters or something like that. I can't remember the exact numbers, but we don't know how to interpret these things. We don't know how to prove they're safe.
0: And and this is actually a big deal right now in the Canadian, not Canadian parliament, but it is policies that we're having issues with. Um, the call for a pause until we can create adequate or good policy that, that deals with the harms that AI causes the issue. Being we don't know a lot of the harms that mm-hmm. AI causes. So,
2: yeah, and so I'm actually part of the uh, Canadian AI Safety Network. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a nonprofit trying to create um, uh, white papers and whatnot to inform uh, Canadian Parliament about these these issues. Um, and one of the big challenges is that it needs to be international. Um, mm-hmm. a, i think about uh i' wanna say again six months ago uh Japan said that um there is no copyright claim uh, on training AI. So, like, if your AIs are trained in Japan and they tr- uh, use your books, your pictures, or whatever to be trained, you can't claim copyright on those. So okay. it doesn't matter anymore what Canada says. It doesn't matter if we say, you know, uh, OpenAI has to pay uh, if you use, an art, uh, uh, use Canadian materials uh, to train because they'll just move their servers to Japan, train there, That's and then they're in their clear. So you, you have to have broad international agreement
0: so with that then Alex yeah. just because I think we're just at the edge or yeah. the end of our episode yeah. you know we've heard a lot of I think scary rhetoric here about the potentials of AI and how we need to start taking it seriously so let's try to end this on end this episode on a positive note what would you suggest um, that we do right. now
2: uh, yeah so no I, I would I don't think fear is the right answer um, I think Understanding where we are is the the first step towards doing something about this. And again, I would point to the example of um, of climate change, and we you know scientists, academics mm-hmm. in the nineteen seventies were saying this is a real thing and uh, we should be doing something about it. It took until I think nineteen ninety three before any major organizations stood up and said well, this is part of our research agenda. Uh, that was uh, Greenpeace, I think. And it took like a decade more, at least, before it became uh, a common part of the environmentalist movement. And that's a thing that we can notice. That's a trend Mm -hmm. that happened in the past. It wasn't that uh, environmentalists in the 1970s were... Uh, denialists in in the modern sense of climate change. Um, But they they had other priorities. They were worried about uh, toxic waste and oil spills, like the Exxon Mm -hmm. Valdez was in 1989, I think. And and those are really important things. But there was also this other thing, this other thing that was climate change that wasn't easy to notice, that you needed, it would be best to work on early. AI is the same thing. We have deep fakes, we have fake news, but there's also this problem of increasing capability that's going to lead to, um, you know, more dangerous situations. Uh, I'm more worried about the job loss than, than the end mm-hmm. of the world, but like, we haven't eliminated those ones. So that's what we should do. We should say, yes, there are problems now, and we should worry about the later ones. Uh, work on the war- later ones. As I say, fear is not the best answer. Let's get to work.
1: Alex, every time we talk, I learn something new. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> I think you are um, living proof of how LIS itself is very multidisciplinary and is often the platform at which different intersections meet. Uh, And So you're very fascinating man, and we'll have to have you back and talk some more. (laughs) This half hour has flown by very quickly. Yeah, I'd love to be back for aging justice. I would love for you to be
0: back for aging justice. I know.
1: We're looking forward to it very much, Alex, and maybe the three of us can get together again. Sounds great. I appreciate it. Well, thank you. And this has been Gradcast, the official radio show and podcast of the Society of Graduate Students here at Western University. I've been your host, Mark Ambrosio, and my co-host was Megan Voll. We've been speaking with Alex Mayhew, and this episode was produced by Susie Lee. If you'd like to get involved with the show or get in contact with us, email us at gradcast You can follow us on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter at Gradcast Radio. To listen to us, we're on Radio Western 94.9 FM. You can also find all of our episodes wherever you find our podcasts. Thank you for listening. Enjoy the rest of your day, and thanks again, Alex.